This podcast is brought to you by Free Buddhist Audio, the Dharma for your life. Our work is funded entirely by donations from our generous listeners. If you would like to help us keep this free, make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. Thank you and happy listening. Dharma Pala College is bringing attention to bear on this whole area of, of the new society. Uh, 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 it's very interesting just in a couple of previous seminars that Dharma Pala College has run. I think it's been quite effective at, at being sensitive to issues that are lines and issues that need some clarification uh, and running an event that allows that discussion in that process at least to begin. And I have to say, I think this whole area of, of the new society, it's something I don't even know if I knew I was concerned about it, but I'm just realising how pleased I am that this event's happening, that serious thinking is being brought to it, and that people have taken the trouble to come and to engage with it. And Sabuti mentioned yesterday that he thought the first mention of the new society in our own uh, sort of presentation of the Dharma was in a set of uh, talks given in 1976 uh, called Buddhism for Today and Tomorrow. And it was particularly in a talk called uh, Nucleus of a New Society that this term, uh, I think, was first quoted. Perhaps there are earlier references, it's certainly the one that I'm not uh, aware of. I remember the lecture series really well. Or at least I remember doing a poster for the lecture series really well. Uh, I was living in Glasgow at the time and sort of teaching myself the design basically. Uh, I remember getting a, a photograph of a, a, a crane in the Glasgow shipyards which seemed to be sort of political, sufficiently political and social sticking it on a poster and flag-posting it all over Glasgow. I mention it partly because it was one of the things that brought parody this evening's speaker along to the Glasgow Centre, I guess, in 1976. 77, did a little bit of time lapse, did movements developing things and did move north across the border. But one of the things was, I think Parini said it was, it was the crane, or the crane very light, the one that has father operated in Clyde Sound. And, and I think that kind of, there's definitely a kind of Clyde Sound red strand ran through the, 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 the Glasgow Centre. So I'm going off on a side track already, not even started that. <laughs> <laughs> Just remember, we set up what well, 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 first night live in Glasgow was a print shop. And we were a wee bit clueless, it has to be said, we were sort of making these posters and so on. And we had this really kind of paternal relationship with a print shop just round the corner who happened to be run by old Glasgow Stalinists. Uh, there were people who were you know, organisers of the Glasgow Communist Party. And in the, the Glasgow, uh, in, in their print shop, we had all these meditation posters up that we had printed and we had taught us how to do. And we had these posters up for the sitting in the upper crowd, the upper crowd shipyards. Mm-hmm. So there was an interesting a kind of naive relationship between the developing Glaswegian Buddhism and the, the kind of Scottish political context. And the, the, the first mention of, I haven't looked at the text of this lecture, 
and the first mention of the new society. And I think rather an interesting, it's interesting I think just how fundamentally and how widely Bounty uses the term. So if I may, let me, read, let me just quote what I think the first mention of the new society in Bounty's own teaching. Um, the, the nucleus of a new society is the third of a set of four lectures. Two that come before it, uh, the subtitle is What the FWBO has to offer. Uh, and the, the first one is a vision of human existence. And the second one is a method of personal development. And we think it's the other way around. Maybe a bit more conventionally, looking at Buddhist philosophy, Buddhist practice. The third one moved on to maybe a, a little more innovative ground. And in that context, the personal practice, Bhante then goes on to say, the more one becomes an individual oneself has, the more your own self-awareness, positive emotional growth, the more one relates to others also as an individual. And then he says, usually, unfortunately, one does not relate to others as an individual. One relates to others usually on the basis of common needs, which may be economic, political, psychological, or sexual, or one relates to them on the basis of competition, not to say conflict. One may say that one has two kinds of society. There's a society based on common needs, on needs especially for security of various kinds, and there's a society based on a common commitment to personal development. Uh, the first is what I call a group, the second is what I call a spiritual community. And the second is, of course, the new society. So I thought that was interesting that before uh, Bandy got more specific, before it became any particular structure, anything more formed, what the new society was, was people coming into relationship in a way that supported a common commitment to personal development and personal development and understood in the context of the two lectures that had preceded this one. Uh, in the talks that Dhammaloka has organised, he's obviously gone to trouble, the Dhammaloka, Dhammapala team have gone to trouble to bring in some specialists. Right, I was looking at the list. And there's Vandra Gupta, who's, who's one of the full-time workers for the, the FWHA's meeting, talking about like, keeping it critical. Uh, there's Parami talking about the order, Parami the, the order convenors, Katie Ranja talking about the experience of, of Windhorse. Uh, and I guess the reason that I'm standing here giving a talk is that I've got a particular responsibility within ordination training. I'm, I'm chair of the key sectors college and I'm involved in ordination training in the United States. And I, I guess it's that particular strand that uh, well, I think I've been asked to talk about. I'm asked to talk about the order of community, individual, and community. And I, I think, for me, that's foundational about thinking about the new society. So, say before it's structured, it's just this very simple, uh, almost sensible starting point of Buddhist practice that you've got your own practice and you've got relationships that support that practice. That's the, the fundamental building block, I think, of the new society. Um, 
I want to talk mainly about ordination and training for ordination. Now, a lot of people here are older members, a lot of people here are quite involved in training for ordination, some people are not yet older members. But I, I think that ordination is a marker, it, it's a particular way of thinking about serious spiritual practice. And I, I want to talk about some of the kind of fundamentals of ordination training, and I hope that means I'm going to be talking about some of the fundamentals of spiritual practice and some of the fundamentals of spiritual practice in, in relationship. So I hope what I'm going to say is going to have a sort of a, a relevance broader than just people who are involved in, in the order or in ordination training. Uh, I, I think it does point to some really fundamental things about the nature of practice and about the nature of relationship. So let's, let's see. I want to begin by saying a little bit more from uh, that series of lectures there isn't for today and tomorrow. If you've ever been at a public ordination, most preceptors take some time to explain what they think they're doing. Right, and I have to say, it tends to cover some, something like the same ground. Right? Uh, that, that, that you explain what the private ordination is, and you explain what the public ordination is. Now, the core text of this distinction comes from these lectures. And frankly, again, I think that this is the first time it starts talking about this private ordination and the public ordination. So again, I want to quote. It says, the private ordination signifies one's individual commitment to the three jewels. That's why it's a private ceremony. It signifies the fact that one has made up one's mind that one is going to develop. One has made it up quite independently independent of any pressure, independent of any influence. One's made up one's mind as an individual. One's prepared, if necessary, to go alone. Uh, and then he goes on to say, you're in that sort of mood, that sort of state of mind. You don't mind, you don't care if nobody else in the world is going for refuge, if nobody else in the world wants to develop. This is what you're going to do. Uh, one's determination, if necessary, to go alone. So if you've ever heard a public ordination, the Trinity family have heard a public preceptor pretty much quotes that text. It's interesting to see the kind of roots of it. Then that it goes on almost um, incidentally to say, or certainly when I heard this lecture, I heard it was almost incidental. He says, the public ordination represents the fact that though one was prepared to be alone, one is in fact not alone. And then he sort of carries on. The public ordination is much less fair play, right? much less emphasis than the private ordination. So there's a couple of things that I want to say about this. Uh, the, the, the brief for the talk uh, asked us to, to, to mention uh, challenges and lessons learned. And I think for me there's something in this whole area. Uh, when I first came across the FWS 20, and the ordain that was going to be, it was easier in those days. My whole ordination training involved me saying to the bank, I'd like to get ordained. And the bank said, okay, I don't see any reason why not. That was, that was pretty much it. <laughs> I was then made to wait a matter of weeks before I got ordained, and I thought it was some kind of trial. <laughs> being made to wait that long. Um, and, you know, definitely, I was gung-ho for this. As far as I was concerned, this was the single most important thing in the, uh, my life. 
uh, joining the order, setting aside this, this um, intense commitment. Now, there's something about the fact that you're 23 that I that. You know what, I think it will be kind of good to equivalent to suicide bombers if that's not to do very fanatical. Remember the, the, the British Society describing some Orton members who turned up for a talk and sang the action of shock troops. Definitely something in that intensity that we brought to the thing. The, you know, I think sort of deserves that. I remember my friend uh, at the time uh, describing his experience of some of the young Orton members as rebels without a clue. <laughs> <laughs> But there was definitely something in that intensity for all its naivety that I think, well, I think actually is spiritually necessary. Um, even now when I'm, I'm involved in organisational training, one of the things that I'm, I'm trying to well, look for, I think, when somebody's coming up for organisation, is this idea that what you're looking for is a marker that this commitment to practice is the central shaping current in somebody's life. And it's harder, I think, with the 40-year-olds and 50-year-olds whose life is more complex, always to see that strand. So, so clearly other people have legitimate demands on time and energy. But I would still say that what you're looking for at the point of ordination if somebody says that the intention to grow in awareness, the intention to move away from self-reference into more open, responsive relationship to others is the absolutely central current in life. I think change uh, takes, I don't know if this is quite the, the right language, but change is only going to happen if most of our volitional energy is behind it. A lot of our volitional energy is caught in other activities. There's just not enough momentum for deep change to happen. It has to be the central current for change to be possible. Uh, and, um, I mean, to yeah, try and recapture some of my 20-year-old zeal, I think it's the thing that gives everything else, from a point of view of spiritual practice, that intention to deepen our own awareness is the thing that gives everything else meaning. So our, our work has meaning to the extent that it supports our own deepening a full process of waking up, of freeing ourselves. Our relationships with other people are meaningful to the extent that they support that process of waking up in ourselves and in others. Work that blocks that might sometimes be a sort of necessary condition in our lives, but it's not ideal. From work and support in that process, more of a volitional energy can engage with it. If a relationship can support that process, more of a volitional energy can engage with it. So, coming back to this thing about challenges and lessons learned, it may just be that in my 50s I'm a little bit more complex and a little bit less comfortable than I was. But I've got a question about how you keep that intensity. If it's true that big change needs that almost single-minded commitment of volitional energy, how do we sustain that intensity as individuals? How do we sustain it as a movement? 
But I suppose my experience, but particularly in the States, is more and more people who are coming up for organisation have serious work commitments, have families to raise, they have real demands on energy and on time. How do you keep that into the, the necessary intensity of engagement for practice, that sort of slight strand of fanaticism that I think spiritual practice needs, or obsessiveness or absolute commitment? Second thing I wanted to say about bank is certainly the way I took it, I don't think it does the public organisation justice. And it's a bit was talking about um, the, the, the kind of shift in emphasis in society towards a more and more individualistic way of experiencing ourselves. And I think that's true in spiritual practice. Certainly I thought of my own practice as primarily an individual thing. And, uh, as Maggie says, uh, although I was prepared to go alone, it's a pleasant surprise to find out that I'm not alone. I don't think that does justice to the spiritual importance of what's happening when you find out that you're practicing in relationship. So I want to say a little bit about that. Mentioned already that ordination's got two things to it. It's got private ordination, it's got the public ordination. And I want mainly to talk about the private ordination. This is where the individual, sorry, the public ordination, it's where the individual comes into relationship with, with community. And the thing that distinguishes that the ritual itself is a set of four verses. And the four verses, what we call the acceptance verses, are what you commit yourself to at the time of ordination. And I think these four verses say something significant about the nature of practice and the nature of spiritual community. The four verses uh, are, first of all, with loyalty to my teachers, I accept this ordination. The second one is for the sake of enlightenment, I accept this ordination. The third one is in harmony with friends and brethren, I accept this ordination. And the fourth one is for the benefit of all beings, I accept this ordination. The thing that that's, I think I've only started to really notice since I've, since I've been involved in ordination training is how much an emphasis there is on relationship in those verses. It would certainly at least three out of the four verses to do with relationship, the loyalty to my teachers, harmony with things and brethren, and the benefit of all beings. And actually, in the, the context of the ordination ceremony, that the Dharma is symbolised by a Buddha, a Bodhisattva figure, whose practice we take on. So actually, even in, in the context of ordination, for the sake of enlightenment, is also relationship. It's us coming into relationship with a Buddha or a Bodhisattva. Just this idea that all of those are relational, I think, is quite significant. Starting to notice as well, I guess if, if you're sensitised to something, you become a bit more aware of it in your environment. And I'm noticing it more and more, even in basic Buddhist teaching, how much you get this motif of the individual in relationship. So, more or less at random, a couple of quotations. First of all, from the Ekavutika. The Ekavutika is a, a, a book of the Palatine that just arranges a number of themes by number. So you get the ones, then you get the twos, then you get the threes, and so on. In the section on the ones, two things get mentioned. That's not 
section. And the first one is um, a, a verse that says there's one internal condition. Uh, nothing else does so much for attaining the goal as this one internal condition. What is that internal condition? It's wise attention. It's, it's attention you draw to what supports your own unfolding, skillful instincts. In the next verse, verse 17, it says, there's one external condition, uh, and nothing else does so much for attaining the goal as this external condition. What is that external condition? It's Kalyan Mitrata, it's spiritual friendship. And just very interesting, it's really matter-of-factly getting these two things brought together. You get one verse saying you're looking at your own mental states, the next verse is saying you're coming into relationship with others. Uh, the Kalyan Sutta, which is probably one of my own favourite texts, uh, the Buddha has been asked how you know whether a teaching is true, and he, he lays out a number of conditions, but basically it's two conditions. First condition is when you know in your own direct experience that these things lead to benefit and happiness, you've got grounds for thinking something's true. But then he qualifies it and says, when you know that these things are praised by the wise, then you've got grounds for thinking that they're true. So, so again, you've got individual experience the individual experience and relationship with other people's experience. And I'm just seeing this more and more as a motif in Buddhist teaching. It just seems to me to be almost part of the basic structure. You get it very, very explicitly in the Mahayana, which is very relational with the whole episode of Buddhist ideal. But I'm just seeing it more and more in the early text that it's, it's a developing self-awareness and a developing a connection, responsiveness, depth of relationship with other. And it just seems to me that's part of the nature of spiritual experience, that deepening self-awareness, deepening responsiveness. Um, in the religion of art, one of the descriptions of spiritual experience that I find most provocative is uh, where Banti says spiritual, spiritual experience is essentially the experience of egolessness. Egotism is a movement of contraction upon its own centre. Egolessness, spiritual experience, is a movement of expansion towards something outside the order of our own being. Uh, it's an extraordinary sensitivity to what Wordsworth called unknown modes of being. And he says, enlightenment is not a personal acquisition. And I think just this idea that you move from a, a, move, a contraction in our own centre to, towards a sensitivity to unknown modes of being, you get this movement in two directions. You get this movement into deeper self-awareness. And you get this movement away from self-reference into awareness of, of other. It's, it's, part of the, the basic flavour of spiritual experience, I think. And it's reflected in the ordination practice. You could say that that deepening individual awareness is emphasised in the private ordination. And this coming into relationship is emphasised in the public ordination. So I want to say a little bit more about each of these four verses. So the first one is with loyalty to my teachers. Um, 
this is this is quite a theme in the ordinary movement, isn't it? Uh, to do with anti-letter uh, last May, where we described the order, sort of re-emphasised the order as a community of disciples. So I want to say a little bit about this thing about loyalty to my teachers. And I think, again, if we were going to be looking at lessons learned, uh, I think this is a significant area. But first of all, the fundamental teacher that we're, we're committing to is the Buddha. Uh, Banti says, uh, in discussion around his new letter, that he has recently been emphasizing the importance of the life and teaching of the Buddha. Primarily, he says, it's to the Buddha and his teaching that we go for refuge. And other teachers and other teachings are to be judged to the extent they're in harmony with the teachings of Shakyamuni. I think this idea of acquainting ourselves with the life and teaching of the Buddha, I want to say something about Obviously, this is not my natural bent. I think I've come at the Dharma from a much more abstract point of view, in a sense, a much less personal point of view, if that makes sense. There's a bit of the Buddhist teaching that gets you really excited. Uh, awareness of the Buddha is something I've really had to uh, listen carefully before I need of getting it. And, but he's been saying stuff recently about, about what that looks like. Um, so, for example, uh, one of the things he's been emphasising is the, the experience of pilgrimage. And uh, again, I'm embarrassed so late in my own membership of the order to become something of pilgrimage and just trying to understand what it's about. But I have to say that my own kind of slowness in the uptake gives me. Uh, I'm just sort of realising how profound some of the apparently simple teachings are, and how still we need to to understand some of the apparently simple teachings. Last February we were in Bodhgaya, and there's this fantastic uh, experience of, of doing the, the going for refuge and prostration practice under the Bodhi tree. Uh, I can say a lot, but it's a very kind of strong experience, but you're sitting there with a big community of order members, five, four hundred maybe order members, men and women, uh, westerners and Indians, northern hemisphere, southern hemisphere, and in this practice you visualise uh, a refuge tree, in the centre of the refuge tree is the, the, the Buddha. And then you, you do the meditation practice and you open your eyes and there's the refuge or the Bodhi tree there. And you're there at the point where the Buddha was historically enlightened or at least pretty close to it probably. Now just something about the resonance that the practice got from being in the place where the actual enlightenment happened, or close to the place enlightenment happened, that grounded the practice for me, kind of humanized it, deepened it, Gave it a kind of uh, an organic uh, kind of felt sense I'm not sure it had before. So pilgrimage is a way of doing this. The visualization practice itself uh, is a way of coming into contact with, with the Buddha. But one of the points that I guess this is where I'm I find that a bit more accessible is that you say you need to know the basic teachings of the Buddha. Now, in a number of places he lists what you think the core teachings are, but the, the, the absolutely essential teaching 
that the teaching of the Tetrasana Pradam. And I want to say a little bit about this, partly because we've just been doing some study on, on the preceptors called Split a Laugh Resonant Pantheas, I think I've mentioned in almost every talk I've given in the last year or two, is there are no higher teachings, there are only deeper understandings. And we just did some study on the Tetrasana Pada but I feel like I'm still absorbing, but I think I've completely shifted my grasp of what the Kitsasana Pada is getting at. I want to say just a little bit about it. Now the rest of that is, I'm carrying out my education in public. This is a bit of study I did a week ago, so you're getting my own kind of sensitive response to something that I might have not have understood, but nevertheless, I want to sort of pass it on. So, Sabuti recently had a number of conversations with Banke. Banke's trying to revisit some of his own early teachings and just make sure uh, that he's been clear about what he was trying to get at. And one of the, 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 the strands that, that he, he was addressing was this really central area of the Tichasandapada. It's a very central idea in Banke's own teaching. The idea of conditionality, particularly the idea of conditionality having not just a sort of a, a cyclic element, but a, a progressive element, an element uh, where experience goes deeper and deeper. So a really central teaching of the Buddha, central teaching of Bhante. And the, the, the area that, yeah, I, I want to just sort of talk about it, I think for two reasons. One is, just this idea of how deep some of the simple ideas go. You've come across the Tichasamic Pada from the get-go. 30 years down the line, I still feel like I'm understanding a little bit more deeply what the Buddha, what my own teacher is trying to get at. And also I think I want to just to say something about the, the subtlety of Bhante's own thinking, but we'll come back to that in a minute. But Sibiti was reporting this conversation, and point he was reporting what it was Bhante saying that the Buddha wasn't interested in abstractions about the nature of reality. That he was interested in those areas of experience, or those elements of experience that, that supported deepening self-awareness, deepening self-transcendence. So he was saying the Buddha basically was an empiricist. And his teaching didn't get any more abstract than it needed to. It didn't go any further into speculation than it needed to to support that deepening experience. So then the argument was that later Indian thought, Indian culture in the whole, tended to abstraction and tended to go for, for a, a metaphysical explanation of experience. The Buddha Bhante tended to stick to raw experience. But it tended always just to want to push you back on what was happening in your experience. So, the, the, we were talking, for example, of the text of the Brahma Jala Sutta. And it's about to saying that most of the Brahma Jala Sutta, uh, where the Buddha goes through all these wrong views, he says it's basically the Buddha trying to <coughs> respond to people who misinterpret their own meditation experience. They have a deep experience. They start to theorize about it. And it's the Buddha saying, drop the theory, come back to the experience. What's happening here in direct experience? So what he's saying is that later Indian Buddhism tended to metaphysicalize. So ideas like Shinyata, ideas like Yalaya Vinyana, ideas like 
Maitreya, even ideas like the Bhagavad even ideas like the Bodhicitta, tended to get talked about as, uh, well, they, they got first of all made abstract. And Buddha was saying, the Bible was saying, that if you make something abstract, it's hard not to think about it as a thing. So there's something out there that you're going to come into relationship to, you're going to open up to, it's the context that everything happens within. And he said that the, the Buddha was much, much simpler than that. And then this very, very moving uh, little passage that I don't know if I'm going to do justice, but we're talking about spiral conditionality. And the, 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 the way the discussion in the study went was that spiral conditionality represents the permanent possibility of awakening. It's that within every moment of consciousness, the possibility of deepening experience is there. And then this lovely little aphorism of Sabu's, he said, the universe is such that stones fall to the ground and enlightenment is possible. So it's just it's part of the nature of things. In the same way that gravity means that when that opens up, actually it hits the ground. Uh, that in any moment of consciousness, there's the possibility for deepening self-awareness. That you can absolutely have confidence in that. And then it's, it, it was trying to say that conditionality gets the sense of a dynamic, unfolding current in the experience. Uh, there's no such thing as the Gudi Chitter. Uh, there's no many aphorisms that came out of this study. But, but what's being described is that tendency of the mind towards awareness, the frustration of the mind whenever it's blocked and it's moved to self transcendence. And that the liberation, when you're able to act in accord with the nature of things, when you start to move into something, it's the experience of liberation and a deepening self awareness. But this idea that there's no thing that's being described, you're just looking at a potential within the current of your mind, potential you can have absolute confidence in the way you can put things on apple falls of the tree, that's going to help you. Uh, and again, sort of badly commenting on this, saying that you have strong experiences, but resist the need to label the experience. He was saying that he's recognised recently a strong tendency for people to naively apply Buddhist characters to the experience. Mm-hmm. What he was saying was accept the mystery, approach your own experience with reverence, understand the Buddha's, the Buddha's metaphysical reticence. You need just enough ideas to open you up to a sensitivity to the nature of your own mind what it is that emerges of yourself, with the conditions. Now there was something in all that, there's something about that uh, idea of the what spiral conditionality, that, that tendency of the mind to move to those deeper and deeper levels of, of awakening, you just part of the nature of things, but I must say I'm very moving. And also something about this idea of, of the Buddha not wanting to metaphysicalize. Just the, the idea that any theory about your experience puts a distance between you and your experience. Just what do you need to know that plugs you in more deeply to that unfolding experience? And Padma Bhaja was talking about some study that Bhaja did with the Mitrakin units. And they were talking about Nirvana, or at least they sort of wandered into Nirvana as a topic. 
you value thought to study. Just the what you sit with that for a minute. So, the man is in the air, study thoughts, a bit like Dan Walker's trying to be with the applause, just create an atmosphere where people are sensitive. And then the discussion got moving, people started to ask questions, they started to get abstract and back, so that's moving. So just touching on something, opening up a space for something, but then as soon as it gets metaphysical, this is the ground again, the practical experience. But there was something about coming out of that, um, a little more sensitive to why the Buddha was reluctant to theorize. Just what so much of Buddhist practice is trying to do in pointing you back, pointing your attention back to your own direct experience. And to join this back up with the Buddha, one of the things, again, I really hadn't quite got so clearly before was back to saying that actually the Buddha is a better description of what it is that we're trying to move towards than the more abstract categories of the Dharma. Uh, that if you're reading the Buddha's life story, if you're around who the Buddha was, if you're visualizing the figure of the Buddha, in some ways you're closer to that complex, undefinable experience. You're becoming open to that complex, undefinable experience in a way that's not so abstract or so conceptual as the, the more metaphysical teachings of the Dharma. So this thing about, first of all, um, with loyalty to my teachers, is thanks to what the Kalama Sutra was saying, is us deepening our own self-awareness, that that self-awareness coming into connection and coming into relationship with an experience deeper than our own. So the, the Buddha is the, the core of that, the core for the whole tradition. But we don't always meet the Buddha. And in a lot of cases, we need the experience of a relationship with people that we've got a more loving contact with. And you could say things about a lot of different levels of this, but I want to say just something about Banky himself. Um, Banky talking about the order in me said that you don't practice the Dharma in the abstract. That the, the practice of the Dharma has to take a particular form. So you need to follow, he says, a particular set of teachings and practices within a particular framework in order to experience any progress. You need to have a specific formulation of the Dharma, a specific structure that we engage with. And Bhante describes uh, this language of the disciple as pen of the disciple, where he's saying that in as much as you, as you follow my understanding of the Dharma and the general range of practices that I've taught, you commit to a community of practice to that extent. That's, that's how he's defending the disciple. It's following a particular set of teachings and practices, a particular framework, and a particular way of making sense of, of the whole tradition. Again, coming back to this thing about challenges and lessons learned, I, I would say in the last few years that the, the order has brought in experience from a number of different sources, a number, particularly a number of different meditation traditions. I think to some extent that's been helpful. I think it's really supported a deepening meditation practice. I think it's also been confusing. I think we've brought in metaphysical ideas. I think we've even brought in approaches to practice that don't always fit in with one another. So you've got this idea, as Matthew says, that other teachings and other teachers are to be judged. 
to the extent that I'm having you the teachings of Shakyamuni. Now, I think there's two things that we've been asked to do. There's what Bhante calls critical ecumenicism, that we've been asked to learn from the tradition, but to engage with it critically. And I think we're also, there's just this really practical point being made, that we need to engage with a coherent system of practice. So we've been asked to bring on, bring in other practices, have our own experience deepened, to use things that support our own deepening experience. But to do that in a way that keeps us in dialogue and that keeps us open to experience deeper than others. And I think this idea of, again, but for me the, the role of Dante as an interpreter, as a, the, the, the yeah, his unfolding of this idea, particularly Pada, me just realising how much I've learned from that, how much I've understood that as the Buddhism operating framework, and it, yeah, just sort of recognising the value for me of dialogue with an, a grasp of the Dharma and deeper than mine. So I think this thing, but maybe one of the challenges is us as an author, us as a spiritual community, as our own experience deepens, as we find things that support that experience, how do we balance that with a receptivity? How do we balance that with an understanding of the tradition and a receptivity to people within a new community whose experience is deeper than ours? Something of that nature of dialogue with the balance of the A little more briefly, let me deal with the other three verses. The second one is uh, for the attainment of enlightenment, I accept this ordination. And in a sense, this is one of the, the absolutely fundamental commitments uh, that you this. And it, 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 it links, I think, it follows on from that last verse, Banty says in his mail letter, for a commitment to be strong, it has in a sense to be narrowed. It's only through intensity of commitment and practice that you achieve any results. You will not achieve that intensity if you try to follow different teachings and practices at the same time. So the sort of first thing I think, uh, and again a sort of lesson and a challenge, is that we as a community, I think, have to have the, well, first of all, the confidence that the framework of practice that we're practicing within supports deep change. Second thing is, I think you need the skills to actually support that change. So I think just the, the fundamental Buddhist practice is what does it take to support your own deepening experience? And the idea that your practice doesn't stop, right? that, that, that what you're doing is you're setting up a, a, a momentum towards deepening self awareness. And like for, for a lot of us, it's going to be a long time before you can be looking back and see the job is done. I think it's a process that just unfolds through our, our lives. Very, very uh, simple formulation of that. That is, uh, uh, some of have quoted uh, quite often in the last year or two, that back in there are five main strands of spiritual practice. There's a deepening awareness, deepening positive emotion, deepening clarity about the nature of things. That deepening clarity is starting to inform how that we act more and more from that deepening self-awareness in every situation that we're in. And then fifthly, that we do what we can to help other people. And I, I, one of the seminars, I said, if you do these five things all the time, you 
get the freedom that we are following it the path. One just has to intensify one's effort in those five directions all the time. If you're intensifying your engagement with awareness, engagement with positive emotion, uh, the deepening clarity of the nature of things, acting more and more at that clarity, doing what you can to help others, uh, he says, in that case, you simply can't go wrong. So just, the reason I want to mention that, and again, this thing about challenge, is that I think you need enough clarity about what you're doing to know what the next steps are, to know how you accomplish deepness. Third to the verses is harmony with friends and brethren. And again, this just comes back, I think, to this fundamental point that we come into relationship with our practitioners. Uh, and that you're trying to set up, a, a, I think what this verse is asking for is a certain intensity in relationship. That makes the point in his lecture that society consists of people in relationship. And it's the same with the spiritual community. The spiritual community, people trying to grow in relationship with other people who are trying to grow. And I suppose I just want to raise the question of what does it take to create intense relationships? Now, I think there's, there's obvious points that just follow in from the point about our own the teachers. Uh, our spiritual practice is supported if you're in dialogue with people, real dialogue with people who's grasping the Dharma, understanding the Dharma of deeper others. So I think that's a fundamental for a really deep in practice. I think it's also true that as you come into a relationship with other practitioners, your own experience is supported. Paradigmatic example of that is the own retreat. Right, so just a simple example that I guess most of us have had. Um, I was thinking of a specific example. I was thinking of a retreat I was on last spring with Dan Walker, Madrasana. We were looking at the Anasati Sutta. And uh, about three days in, it was clear that what my reading of the text was different from Dan Walker's reading of the text. And on day three, I think it was, or maybe day four, I had given a talk explaining my stages. And day four, maybe it was day five, Dana Woka gave a talk on the same stage and explained to me this is how I had it, how I had got it wrong. In fact, what the text was trying to say was so and so. So I was a little taken aback. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, over the, the rest of the retreat, we had a dialogue about it. And actually, I just realised my understanding of the text deepened. I just had this really. Um, of valuable experience of, of a text that's absolutely central to my practice. Some that I've been working with quite happily actually. Suddenly coming up a different reading of it. And out of that fiction, and out of that dialogue, my own understanding of the text going deeper. And, and something that happens in the relationship, it's not just that I got information, but there was a sort of level of um, being sparked off by somebody else's intelligence or somebody else's awake engagement with the teaching of, of the Buddha. And just that, like for me, it was such a, a, a definitive experience of what it is that can only happen if you're practicing in a, in a context. You're really seriously engaging in your own experience. You're seriously coming into a relationship with other people who are equally seriously trying to clarify their experience. 
both of you relationship to the teaching of the Dharma, something happened in that that couldn't happen if you were back from alone. But I was just thinking that you know, like sort of sitting there in um, the, the, the retreat like that, having that kind of dialogue in the shining uh, with people who to some extent I know, and just the, the atmosphere of practicing in, in that kind of context, the kind of supportive it was of knowing practice. Famous quote from Banke, he says, it seems that the bodhicitta is something more likely to arise within a community, within a number of people who are working to allow it to manifest. The bodhicitta is more likely to arise in the case of a number of people working hard together, stimulating, sparking one another off within any solitary individual. Uh, in whose case it may tend to be more like an individual, narrow experience. And I suppose just more and more that's my experience is how much, uh, how valuable a uh, relationship around practice is. Uh, it was on retreat in January, and we were having this discussion, an ordination training retreat. And the guy in the discussion was really frustrated with his own practice. And a lot of frustrated with going for refugee people, And he's saying that yeah, yeah, sometimes he just thought he wanted to withdraw and really go for it. And what he meant by really go for it was moving in, engaging more intensely in meditation practice, and with ethicalness, really go for it. And just at this moment of clarity where you see something that you've always known. But you just sort of understand it a bit more experientially, just realising that what he would be really going for to me would not be fully mature spiritual experiences, it would be a polarised experience. You just understand, you just get that, that, that there's no mature spiritual experience that doesn't have built into it a growing awareness of a growing openness to a growing responsiveness to other people. But I was just thinking, God, that's the, that's the, it's not too reductive. At least that's one of the things the Buddhist idea is getting at. It's part of the nature of the experience. And a withdrawal and intense looking at your own experience is going to have its place, but only having its place in a context that brings you into relationship, I would suggest. So, back to this thing about questions and challenges. Um, I grew up in a generation where people lived together and worked together. In the order these days, there are fewer people in those contexts that I think support engagement. I think there's even a drift away from chapters. Right? What Bagley was saying in the lectures, it's essential that the order meet weekly, that you come into relationship in that kind of way. And the question and challenge for me is if an intensity of engagement is a fundamental support for our own deepening practice and our own self-transcendence, what are the conditions that support that intensity of engagement? I have to say, to me, it still makes sense that people are living and working together. If that's not the case, then I think it's just this question of how self-transcendence gets supported, how we create the intensity of relationships that support it. And that brings me on just the last of the verses, the last of the verses, and that's for the benefit of all the I think that just means that this 
depth there is, well, well, the, 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 the grown experience that you're having, the deepening self-awareness, the, the opening up and responsiveness, it's natural for it to want to communicate itself. And it, it's not evangelism, it's just that as you understand what supports your own liberation, there's something about wanting to include others who are in pain in that process of how they free themselves from their own pain. It's part of the, the deepening responsiveness for yourself and to others, I think. just want to, to, to read one last quote from the lectures. Bandy says that originally the Western Buddhist order was conceived of as a way order. The idea was that people would commit themselves to the three things and work under personal development within the context of ordinary family life, full-time job and so on. However, as time went on, more and more of the members wanted to give fuller expression to their commitment, to the spiritual life, to the work of the order. They found it difficult to do this within the framework of family life, a regular job and so on. So at present, this is 1976, there are various kinds of older members. Some older members are married, some are married. Some have full-time jobs, some part-time jobs. Some are full-time workers for the movement. Some live at home with their families. Others live in communities of various kinds. But all are members of the order, all united by a common canopy. So, three jobs. It's no longer possible, he says, to speak of the order as a way order. At the same time, it's not a monastic order. Perhaps it represents some new kind of development, a development more in accordance with the original spirit of the Dharma. I just thought that's a very bold conception of what the order is. What you're trying to do is to find a way where you've got that full, zealous engagement with the Dharma in the conditions that we live in now. Um, as I was saying at the start, I think in, in my generation there were people who lived very fully within the, the world of the world. But I think it was narrow. I, I, I think that we excluded a lot of people who had a serious spiritual practice. And I think there's a real value in the, the broadening out that the order has been through in the last 10, 15 years. It's fantastic, I think, that people in people my age to practice the Dharma, as well as young people, people with communities, people with families. I think it's crucial that you're recognising the potential for spiritual growth in any individual and setting up an approach to the Dharma that supports that. On the other hand, I worry that there's a possible loss of intensity in that. Remember Norman Fisher, who was the other at San Francisco's Zen Centre? talking about mindfulness practice becoming more common in the community. And he said, what do we make of this? He said, is this the Dharma adapting itself to society? Or is this the Dharma being watered down? And then he said, how would you tell the difference between the two worlds? And I, I thought that was such an interesting question. Again, just coming back to this fundamental thing of the new society, what it is, first of all, I think, is us as individuals trying to deepen our own self-awareness. Secondly, it's recognising that that self-awareness, that deepening self-awareness, is supported by coming into relationship with people who share that intention. And that the, 
if we connect with deeper experience, if we create the intensity of relationship, what's crucial when we get supported. I want to see that broaden out as far as possible. And back to the British book, how do you make that available in language that makes sense to people in very, very different situations from, from mine? On the other hand, how do you create the intensity of engagement of practice that means you really do have something of value to, to offer to the world? And, and maybe for me, that's the, the last of the, 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 the lessons or the last of the questions. How do we broaden out their engagement in a way that intensifies our own engagement with the Dharma, our own engagement with the process of self-transformation rather than confusing it? So the order, I think, us coming into relationship with other practitioners is the basic building block that the engagement with the, the structures of the new society rests on. We hope you enjoyed this week's podcast. Please help us keep this free. Make a contribution at freebuddhistaudio.com forward slash donate. And thank you 